You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. Tonight, we are finishing up our series. If you've been hanging with us the last uh, handful of weeks, you know we've been talking about Psalm 23, and tonight we finish up with the last verse in Psalm 23. It's kind of it's sad to see it come to an end, right? Um, but there'll be a new series after, <clears throat> after our refill, or our reset night, refill, reset night, hopefully it will be filling us, in a, refilling in a way. Um, but we're in Psalm 23, so we're going to finish up our series tonight with Psalm 23, verse 6. Okay, so we're going to read that together. Psalm 23, verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Man, that's some good news right there. I've got two questions I want to ask in this message, and in answering those two questions, hopefully we'll get at everything that we need to take away from this verse. Okay, so we're going to jump right into it. First question that I want to pose to this uh, is to this sort of first phrase, that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. When I ask this question, what does it mean for goodness and mercy to follow us? So, uh, you know, that question's on the screen for you guys, but we're asking that question. We're going to answer it in the ways that we're going to answer it. It's going to be on the screen for you. But asking that question, what does it mean for goodness and mercy to follow us? And here's how I want to answer that question. I have two sentences that I, ha- I think help clarify the question, uh, clarify parts of the question, clarify parts of the verse, and then really what I say under each of those sentences is what's going to really be the answer to that question. Okay, so the things that are highlighted and bolded and on the screen for you, those things are going to be things that really help clarify this first question so that we understand really how to answer it, and the answering will be kind of underneath. So here's what I want to say to clarify that question. The goodness and mercy following us is God's goodness and mercy. That may not blow your minds. You might have went ahead and assumed that, uh, but I think it's worth saying because this is not just some impersonal goodness, some impersonal mercy that's following us. It is, it's God's. It is, is really when you look at these things, you say, hey, goodness and mercy is following me. What you're saying really is God is after me. God is following me with his goodness and his mercy. And really, this is who he is. I want us to see that these two things that he says are, are descriptions of part of who God is. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, or the first part of 7, says this. says, the Lord passed before him, that being Moses. Okay, so Moses is, is asking the Lord to, to show him who he is, more or less. Like he's, he's after who the Lord is, and the Lord is going to show him. He said, Lord, just reveal yourself to me. He said, I'm going to show myself to you, but before I do that, I'm going to tell you who I am. And he says these things about himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands. Okay, so when we read here that God is merciful, we read that God is merciful and gracious, the word actually merciful that is listed for us here in Exodus 34 is not the same word as in Psalm 23. But rather, the word that is in Psalm 23 is translated here as steadfast love. And it's mentioned twice. So uh, he's abounding in this steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that steadfast love for thousands. I'll explain that more in a minute, how, how it is we can go from mercy to steadfast love 
how those two things can be translated from the same Hebrew word. But for now, I just want us to see that this is part of who God says he is, that he is this. He is this merciful God. And then you look at a place like Psalm 86.5, and you see these two words together, the word for goodness and the word for mercy in our Psalm 23 text. You see them together listed as attributes of the Lord in Psalm 86.5, where it says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Same Hebrew words. You are good, tob. You are abounding in steadfast love, hesed. Like these two words describing God. So this is his goodness. His mercy. When we think about goodness, think about God being good. What does that mean? What does it mean for God to be good? Is it a way that we would define good? Is that, like, how do we come about understanding what he means when he says about himself to us in his word that he is good? I think, for one, we know that he is only good. He's only good. There's no evil in him. James 1.13 tells us that he can't be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. There's nothing evil about him. There is no, uh, no evil thing. He is only good. So no evil comes forth from him. Only what is good. And he defines himself what is good from what is not. Really good is defined by that which lines up with who he is. So he is the source of all goodness. And anything that we're going to call good must line up with what he defines as good. Because he is the determiner of what is good and what is not good. All good is coming from him. And so he knows how to bring about what he knows to be good, even out of things that we might never consider good. So sometimes we talk about this, you know, over the, over the series. Sometimes things happen in our life that we look at and we say, there's no way that this is good. There's no way, no way that this thing that I'm experiencing is good. And we look and we see our own sin in our lives and we're like, well, why, why has God allowed me to go through these things? Why has God allowed me to suffer, like, struggle through these things? Why did he allow me to sin? I've looked back on my own life, and I'm like, why, God, did you allow me to sin in these ways? Surely this isn't good. Like, why would you allow these things? And we question that sometimes. And it, it may be hard for us to understand how God could bring about good, even through what we know is not good, or what we would call not good. But somehow, he knows how to do these things. You may have heard Romans 8.28 before, where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work according to uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So that God, somehow, in his, in his wisdom and in his goodness, he can take even what we recognize as evil, bad. We would never call these things good, and he can work good out of it. He can bring about what is good, even from the things that we look at, and we go, I don't see any good in that. I don't see how he could possibly work that for good. And yet, he is able to do so because he is goodness. And so he's able. We hear popular nowadays in like Christian songs. Uh, maybe you could probably think of one as I'm saying this, a Christian song where it says, if it's not good, he's not done. You know, if it's not good yet, if you don't recognize this as something that God has brought good out of yet, then maybe he's not done with it. And I think that's true. I think there's a reason that so many Christian songs are trying to include like a sense of that in it nowadays because he not only knows how to bring good, even out of the worst circumstances, he is the one who is able to do that. He really is capable, and we may never see it. We may never see the good that comes out of it. We may never recognize what he's doing in whatever things he may be allowing in your life. But rest assured, he does. He sees it all. He knows what he's doing. He knows the cause and effect. He knows the reason. He knows the result, and he's working for the good, particularly, as 
Romans 8.28 tells us, particularly for those who love God, those who have been called according to his purpose. He and his goodness is right there with us in our day-to-day ups and downs. Like, that is what is following us, his goodness. But then you also see mercy. And I said a minute ago that this word for mercy in Psalm 23 could be translated, and often is translated, steadfast love. How can we have one word that means steadfast love and also means mercy? And I think where the two things line up is that there's an idea to steadfast love of this hesed that is a committed love. It's a committed love that, that loves no matter what. And where I think this is often translated mercy is because mercy is, in my understanding, not giving someone what they deserve. So to have mercy means that you withhold what is deserved from somebody else. So when God looks at us and shows us mercy, he doesn't give us what it is that we deserve. We talked about it a few weeks ago, that every day is a mercy. The fact that you wake up and that he didn't um, bring you to death for your sin. You're still alive. That is a mercy in and of itself. And it's a mercy that he would save any of us and not give us what we deserve, eternal condemnation and separation from him, right? It's a mercy, not giving them what they deserve. And when I see the two things connecting, is like his commitment to us as his people is so strong. His love is so committed that he doesn't give us what we deserve. So it is merciful. It's a love that's not dependent on what we have done or what we have earned. It's committed. It is steadfast. And when it is set on us, when he sets that love on us, it never turns away. It is committed and locked in for good. There's a couple of verses I want us to look at that prove this point. Jesus himself is saying that when his love is set on us, it never goes away. John 6, 37 through 40. Okay, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says, I will never cast out. I won't lose a single one that is mine. And that is what he's trying to communicate to us, that Jesus Jesus is saying of himself, he's like, if you are mine, I will get you to the end. I will get you to me. I will raise you up on the last day, and no one is ever going to be cast out from me if they are given to me. And then he says in John 10, so fast forward four chapters, John 10, 27 through 30. We've referenced this chapter a few times talking about the shepherd in this psalm. In 27 through 30, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you think not a thing, not a single thing could take us from his hand when we belong to him. That once you are given to me, once you belong to me, once you are a sheep that follows me, no one can snatch you out of my hand. There's great benefits to knowing that it's him and not just this random goodness and mercy, not this random idea of like, I hope goodness is following me, I hope mercy is after me, but it's not impersonal thing, impersonal thing but it's, it's him that's after us and it's him that's sticking with us and it's him that's not gonna let us go. I think there's great benefits to knowing that. There's a second thing to clarify what we mean when we ask the question, what does it mean that goodness and mercy follows after us? And here's the thing. We have been 
and continue to be pursued by his goodness and mercy. I think sometimes when we look at that word follow, you know, so we're looking at the word follow in this verse that uh, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You know, I think sometimes we look at it we're like, okay, well, they're just kind of trailing behind me. You know, they're kind of in my train, they're, they're around, but I don't, I don't think we get the full sense when we just read follow. Often, uh, the word that just translated follow here means pursue or chase after. It's kind of like the idea of uh, most of the time when it's used in the Old Testament, it's used of enemies pursuing us. So like if, if the Psalm's talking about something, something uh, chasing or pursuing after, it might be the same word that's used here for goodness and mercy following us. So you get this idea that if, if it's often used of enemies pursuing, you may think of the fact that, yeah, enemies may pursue us. There may be things that are against us or people that are against us. Last week we talked about spiritual warfare. We may, we may have spiritual beings who are against us. Enemies may come at us. But even if enemies pursue us, goodness and mercy pursues us all the more. Goodness and mercy will win the day in the end because they are pursuing in the same way that these other things might be pursuing us. So here's the thing. It may seem like some other stuff is pursuing you. It may not feel like his goodness and his mercy are pursuing you. It may feel like instead temptation is pursuing you. You got a, a specific temptation or a few that keep lingering over your head and they just, they're chasing you down. And you feel like, I don't know that I can outrun these things. I don't know if I can keep staying a step ahead of these things. They're chasing after me. It may be that um, some shame, a sense of shame is chasing after you. A shame over something that you've done in the past. Shame over sin that you committed yesterday. Shame over a continued sin that you continue to struggle with and continue to fight against. And it may feel like that's all that's really chasing after you is a sense of shame. Could be worry for you. Could be like everywhere you turn, you find a new thing to worry about. As soon as one thing is taken care of, one question is answered in your mind, another thing pops up. And it's like that worry just stays with you. And that feels like what's chasing you all the time. But I want us to know tonight that his goodness and his mercy are greater than all these things. And as much as these other things might be pursuing you, and maybe fill in the blank, it could be something else besides temptation, shame, worry for you that you feel like is chasing after you. But listen, his goodness and his mercy can outrun those things. They can outflank those things and defeat those things in your life. You know, we sing that song, The Goodness of God, and we sing, Your Goodness is Running After Me. I wondered for the longest time, like, is that even a biblically accurate statement? You know, your goodness is, is, is running after me. Like, I loved singing it, and we're going to sing it in a minute. That's the song we're singing to close tonight. But I, I used to wonder, like, is that even an accurate picture? Then I get into reading Psalm 23 a little bit deeper, and I'm like, oh, yeah, like, exactly. That's exactly what's happening. His goodness is running after me, and his mercy is running after me. And I want, to, I want us all to know this that this is how it all began for us in the first place. If you are in Christ, it was his mercy and his goodness that pursued you to bring you to that place. If you know him, it's because he came, he pursued, and he initiated. You know, we talk about the gospel, right? That Jesus came, God took on flesh, and he dwelt among us, and he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death, willingly taking punishment for our sin on himself, and then he rose from the dead. Why? 
so that he could rid us from these things that are chasing after us, right? So that he could free us from the shame, so that he could free us from having to live under the weight of this temptation, free us from the fear of death. He did these things for us and came after us. He did this so that he could stand condemned for his own wrath, right, that would fall on us. And he did this in our place, right, for all the things that we have done against him. It was a rescue mission. When he came, it was a rescue mission for us. And so we see, like, Jesus painted the picture of what this looked like. I mean, he, he did it. He lived it out. He was that. He was on a rescue mission for us, coming after us. But he painted a picture of it in Luke chapter 15, in a parable that he was telling about a sheep uh, or a, a shepherd that goes after a sheep. You may have heard it. Okay, Psalm 15, 3 through 7. To keep with the shepherd sheep theme, right? He's, he's right on right here, helping us out, linking a couple of these ideas together. He says in this parable, so he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's be clear about something. Every single person is the one. There's not really a 99 out there who don't need repentance, right? Every single person sin and falling short of the glory of God. So every single person is the lost sheep, right? But in this scenario, he's saying, even if there are 99 over here, they don't see their need for repentance, but there's one out here who's lost. I'm chasing after the one. Every single one of us, one of us was the lost sheep in the scenario, and Jesus has come after us. And not only that, if you belong to him, think about this. If you belong to him, what he's saying here is that there is such rejoicing over that, such rejoicing over the fact that you were chased down and have been found that you've been put on his shoulders and carried. There's rejoicing in the fact that you have come home. There's rejoicing in heaven over the fact that you are his, that you belong to him, and that you're going to be there forever. That's, that's an encouraging and hopeful thought for me, to think that he has pursued me in this way, and there's such rejoicing over me. That's not what I deserve. That's what he's given me. And you may need that exact thing right now. You may need to be found right now. You could still be the lost sheep that's out there. And his mercy and his goodness are chasing after you. He's coming after you. He's the shepherd, and he's chasing you down. And you may need to stop where you're at. Just stop running after what you think is best for you. Because I think that is our natural inclination. So many of us, even those of us who are saved and who belong to Jesus, our natural inclination is still to chase after what we think is best for ourselves. And we chase hard after that, and we make it an idol above him. If you don't know him, please stop chasing after what you think is best for you and running after what the world has to offer because you could be the lost sheep in this scenario right now. And if you stopped running and stopped wondering for just a second, you just stopped wandering for just a, just a second and turned around, you would find the shepherd pursuing you with his mercy and with his goodness. And you could belong to him. You could be the sheep in this scenario where you are picked up on the shoulders and there's rejoicing over you and you come home and, and everyone is celebrating and heaven is celebrating over you being found where you were lost before. That could be you. And you can receive that right now. Jesus Christ is God. He took on humanity. He lived sinlessly. He faced his own wrath and condemnation when he died on a cross for you. 
so that you wouldn't have to face that if you would put your faith in him to be the savior that you need. Not only that, he rose from the dead and he lives right now. He's reaching out to you right now through his word, trying to bring you back to himself. This is his goodness and his mercy chasing after you right now. You can receive that. Will you allow him to overtake you? I think that's the thing. It's like his goodness and mercy, it can chase after, but will you stop and surrender and say, look, I, I want this to overtake me. I want to be found. I want what's running after me to, to get me, to bring me back. And that could be you, and that could be where you're at. And you could right now, where you're at, stop listening to me altogether and go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to save you, to admit that you need that, to admit that you're the one who is lost and that you, you need to be found, that you feel like you're being found right now and put your trust in him to be your savior and your Lord. You could have that. If you've never done that before, if you are confused about whether or not you've done that before, it doesn't hurt to just go to him in a sense of surrender and say, I, I want this to be true for me. I want your mercy and your goodness to catch me. I want to be yours. So if that's you, do that right now. You can tune out the rest of this and spend time alone with the Lord if that's what you need. But if you have received him and you have received new life in him, I want you to know this. Philippians 1.6, Paul says to the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began the good work in you, who saved you, who found you, who brought you back, he is going to bring to completion what he started in you. God is not done with you if you belong to him. He's not letting you go. That whole, you know, line of, of if it's not good, he's not done. Yeah, that's true in your life. So if you don't like where you're at, there's a good chance that a lot of you in here are, would say, I'm a believer, but I don't really like where I'm at. There's further for me to go. There's stuff that I want to, I want to get right with, with the Lord. Like there's, there's, I want to be better. You may not like where you're at. Listen, if you don't like where you're at, good news is he's not done with you. He's not done with you. He's still at work in you. The question is, will you let him? Will you let him work on you? Will you let him come in? Will, he, will you let him catch you again with that mercy and that goodness and, and bring you along? Are you cooperating with him in growing in your relationship with him? Or are you just resisting? Can you see him at all working in your life? You know, his, stead, his love is steadfast. His love is steadfast. He's committed. So the thing is, like, how committed are you in this sense? And I'm not trying to put any weight or pressure on you. Actually, if anything, I'm trying to take pressure off of you. You may feel like I got to fix stuff. I'm not good enough yet. Good news is he is all good, and he's chasing after you. And what it looks like, honestly, is continued surrender to him and he will bring you to the place where he wants you to be. He's going to finish what he started in you. And one thing that I, I think a verse like this can help us with, honestly, is assurance of salvation. Some of you have probably dealt with that before. Like, do I know I'm saved? Maybe when I was asking that question a minute ago, like, if you don't know where you're at, you know, maybe spend this time praying to the Lord. Some of you have been through that before and have tried to figure out, am I, am I truly saved? I went through this a lot in my younger years, and through middle school, through early high school, I had no idea where I stood. I had prayed a prayer when I was eight years old. I'd gotten baptized, but I just didn't know. And the problem was, I was trying to live up to his standard on my own. I was trying to fix myself 
like I was talking about. And one day, I finally realized that it was what Jesus did for me that was enough. And I didn't have to try to be enough. I didn't have to try any harder. It was what he has done for me that makes all the difference. The weight was finally lifted off my shoulders. That changed everything for me. And I was able to actually live for him out of freedom and just joy knowing that I was his rather than trying to make sure that I was his. I just leaned on the fact that he's, what he said is true, and I believe the gospel. And I want to tell you, you don't have to live under unnecessary pressure to always get it right or try to fix yourself. The secret sauce to sanctification, the secret sauce to growing in your relationship with the Lord is regular surrender and humility before the Lord. It's not puffing yourself up. It's not trying to be better. not trying, you know, with all your might, all of your will, but rather humility. Surrender before the Lord. Because this is an ongoing thing for us believers. He pursues, we surrender. You ever wonder if his patience is wearing thin with you? If he's getting tired of pursuing you? You ever had that question run through your mind? Is, is God getting tired of me? Of, of getting tired of me uh, going through the sin struggle, getting tired of me failing or, or being weak or not having what it takes, whatever. He does not get tired. He does not change. His love is perfectly committed to you if you are his. You belong to him. He loves you way too much to do anything less than whatever it takes to bring you to himself. Think about it. What he's already done. He's already gone to such great lengths to get you to himself in a relationship. If he's done that, will he not also do everything else needed to get you to be with him forever? I think he's going to bring you along. He's going to get you where he wants you to go. You ever wonder if you miss God's best for you? Maybe you wonder if you uh, have missed the path that you're supposed to be on and now I've missed God's will for my life. Maybe you think you've messed yourself up too much. I've messed up too much in my past. I'm already veered off the path that he, want, that he wants for me. I've missed God's will for my life. No way. I'm too much of a mess for him uh, to do all these things. Here's the thing. Has he saved you? If he has saved you and he's brought you to himself, trust me, he is not done with you. God is not done with you. You know, and, and we may think, think to ourselves that we can't be the person that, that he wants us to be. But listen, if you're still alive, and all of you are, if you're still alive, you still have an opportunity to live out God's best for your life. If you're still alive, you, have, you still have an opportunity to live out his will for you. And we'll let you in on a little secret. His best for you and his will for you is more about you walking with him and knowing him than it is all the particulars that you think it is. So you absolutely can still live in his best for you and live in his will for you because really it's to be with him. Not all the other things that we, we try to make his will out to be. And honestly, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come for you and for me if we're in Christ because we have eternal life to look forward to. And that leads us to this next half of the verse. That question, the second question, what does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? What does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? There are uh, a couple different ways you can interpret a couple different parts of this phrase. And I'm just going to lay them out there for you. Some people say that the verb that's translated dwell right here is originally from a verb form that means to return instead of dwell. 
you know? Uh, and then there's also different commentators who have different ideas about what David means when he says the house of the Lord. Is he talking about the temple or is he talking about generally being with God in his presence? Then you got those uh, people out there who debate over the last two words. So the, the last word in my English translation is forever. You may have a different translation. And the reason there are lots of different translations of that or a couple different translations and people are divided over it is because the two words in Hebrew that are translated into my English translation forever actually have a literal meaning of length of days. Length of days. One word that means kind of length, one word that means days. Here's what I think. On this side of Jesus coming, this verse takes on fresh meaning no matter where you land on those things. No matter where you land on those questions, on this side of knowing what Jesus has done. Okay, so the psalm is written before Jesus. If it's written by David, we believe it is, it's written a thousand years before Jesus came. So on this side of things, we have new realities. New realities as believers that change our perspective on this verse. He was looking at it in a certain way with a certain perspective as far as he could know. And the Lord works through him to give us these words. But now when we look back, we can see from a different, in a different light what these things could mean for us. So here's what I want to do. I have two things I want to say to answer the question, what does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? First one is that God's presence is always with us in the spirit. God's presence is always with us in the spirit. In a very real spiritual sense, we always dwell in the house of the Lord right now because we are not, uh, because we are the house of the Lord. In a sense, we dwell, always dwell in the house of the Lord right now because we are right now the house of the Lord. We are the temple of his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In the Old Testament, to approach God's presence would mean going through a priest at the temple, the house of the Lord. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that was in the temple that separated God's presence in the holiest of holies from the common people, and even from the priest outside of one day a year, that veil was torn when Jesus died, symbolizing that the way has been made to the presence of God for all people through Jesus that we have an opportunity to come to Yahweh, this Yahweh God that, that David would have had so much reverence for, this house of the Lord, the Lord is Yahweh, right? This, this God who's, who's so holy that at points in the Old Testament when people uh, would come into contact with him, they would think they were gonna die. That holy and that amazing, we have access to now through Jesus, to have a personal relationship with. And not only that, not only did he tear open the veil, but it went a step further. Not only was the veil torn, God's presence, according to Jesus, was going to come to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Look what he told his disciples in John 14, 15, 15 through 17. This is the night before he's crucified. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He said the Holy Spirit, God himself, is going to come live in you. Not only do you have to go through somebody else and go to the house of the Lord, but the presence of God is going to be with you all the time in you. And it has happened. 
He has come. And every person who has received salvation in Christ, if you're in Christ right now, you have received the Holy Spirit. You have him living in you. He's taken up residence in you. And right now, you are the temple of the living God. We know that. We've heard that. But man, we don't, we don't live like we know that. We don't live with that sense of his presence, right? It says, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, now we've become the house where God dwells. And I mentioned earlier that where we read dwell, it could have actually meant return. You know, even if you read it like, I'll return to the house of the Lord forever or for all my days, um, it really just comes right along with what we said already. There's a lot of surrender that we do, constant surrender as believers. We continually return to him or return to, and what it looks like for us is like returning to a, a recognition of his presence. He's present with you all the time. When you need to repent of your sin and turn back toward him, it's not like he's now distant. No, he's with you. His presence is with you. His goodness, his mercy are right there with you all the time. So when we, when we say we return, it's not that we're returning in a sense of like having to move some distance to where he is. He is there. It's really what we're doing is returning to an awareness, a ready awareness that, that he is with us. His presence is with us all the time, and I think we need that rhythm of returning to the awareness of his presence all the time. Here's the second answer to the question. Being in his presence forever means this life and the next. It means this life and the next. I mentioned that forever translates, you know, the two words that mean length of days. I don't think it really matters that much, the difference in translation, whether it means forever or length of days. Because you know what? Even when these days are over, we're going to be with him forever. We have the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. So whether it means, whether David is intending to mean all of the days of his life or eternal life, same thing is true for us. His presence is with us now, and his presence is going to be with us forever. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are the most people to be pitied if our hope is only in this life. And then he comes back and says, but our hope isn't only in this life because Jesus has been raised from the dead. So we have hope for something that is to come, and that brings hope into this life. Whether we live or whether we die and live eternally, we are with him always. Paul told the Philippians to live as Christ, to die as gain. He also told the Romans this in 8, 38 and 39. The believers in Rome, he tells them, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I am his, I am forever his. Nothing will separate me from him, including death. So whether I'm in this life or in death and eternal life, yes, I am with him, dwelling with him forever in his presence because he defeated death for me. Verse 37 that we didn't read of Romans 8 basically says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors, conquering over death. So do we dwell in his presence? Yeah. Can we return constantly to an awareness of his presence? Again and again to receive this fresh encouragement that we need every time. We return to him again and refocus in again. Yeah, we can. Will we be with him forever? Yes, because of what Jesus has done for us. Our good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He's Yahweh God, and he has invited us into his presence. And if you are in Christ, you have that. So just a few questions for us to consider as we wrap this up. Do we trust his presence? That it's good and that it's merciful. Do we trust it enough 
to actually surrender over and over again and find our hope and our satisfaction in his presence? Do we trust it? And then is the evidence of his goodness and mercy on display in our lives? Is the evidence of his goodness and mercy that is chasing after us, that is now present in us in the Holy Spirit, is it evident in our lives? You know, I really hope that this has been an encouraging message, but I also want to ask these questions. How in tune are we with that presence in us right now? Is it enough for people to see the overflow of it and the overflow of his goodness and mercy in us? Do we live confident in him? Are we bold enough in the faith to talk to it, to talk to people about it? Do we talk about him? Do we express gratitude for his goodness? Even the goodness that we can't understand because right now it looks like bad to us. Do we show gratitude in all these these things, in every circumstance? Are we merciful to others because we've been shown mercy? I don't mean that to be like a test for you. I don't want you to have to grade yourself on these things. Really what I want you to do is to think about these things and have a reality check moment. Like how in tune am I to the presence of God with me and to his mercy and his goodness chasing after me? How in tune am I and how much, really we recognize that, but how much am I living that out? How much are people seeing it in me?